I'm O'Day. That's Vicky. I'm me. You're you. We are we. Oh my god, that was so corny. The You, Me, We podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the You, Me, We podcast. I'm O'Day. I'm Vicky. And we are here this week. Very special episode, especially for us, for those of you who have followed us since day one. Um, you know about our son, uh, our son Khalil, our little, our little, um, our little terror. <laughs> Khalil, he, he's, 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 he's daycare's problem now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, from day one or from episode one, we mentioned that our son does have, uh, pan hypopituitarism. Yes. I, I still get a little tongue tied cause you know, I have a lisp and I stutter. And I think so. like our episode <laughs> four, we went more into depth yeah. of. And we went more in depth going off of our newly f- learned knowledge over the past yeah. two years. Yeah, affecting him directly because yeah. it's not a it's not a one all the same kind of thing. And a lot of our education came from um, the doctors that have told us stuff, right. um, random Google searches that we've done. Yeah, the dangerous <laughs> zone. <laughs> and of course, exactly. Of course, uh, also us uh, connecting with uh, other families. Mm-hmm. That uh, have children or family members with uh, either panhypopituitarism or with some kind of condition dealing with growth hormone. Yeah, and one of the ways was through the the, the Magic Foundation on yes. on um, on Facebook. Yes, uh, and that that's been an amazing help. And this week, I feel like I'm monopolizing the conversation, Vicky. <laughs> well, <laughs> this week is Growth Hormone Awareness Week, and we have. Um, we're very lucky to have a special guest yes. here today. They're all special. All the guests are special, but this one's very, very special. <laughs> no, no, no offense to past guests. They're like, wait, what about me? <laughs> we have Dr. Maniatis, correct? That is correct. Okay, good. I, just, I was like, I know that I'm saying it right, but I don't want to. <laughs> um, so if you can just introduce yourself to our listeners. Of course. So thank you, Oday and Vicky, for um, having me on this podcast. Uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, work with families um, that have children with uh, growth hormone issues. Uh, uh, again, my name is Dr. Aristides Magnatis, and I'm a, a pediatric endocrinologist at Rocky Mountain Pediatric Endocrinology in uh, Denver, Colorado. Uh, a lot of what I do is growth disorders, uh, where I treat children with growth hormone therapy. And uh, I'm also involved in many of the uh, newest research in growth hormone, particularly looking at the phase three trials of uh, long-acting growth hormone. And so it's exciting because this is Growth Awareness Week. Uh, And so many of the listeners probably don't know what that is yet. Um, So thank you for tuning in so you can hear uh, and find out. So um, Growth Awareness Week actually um, went back to 2014, uh, and there was a Senate resolution um, dedicating a week in September for growth awareness. Uh, This was initially um, an effort that was spearheaded by one of the co-founders of the Magic Foundation, Mary Andrews, who herself is a mother of a child um, that had growth hormone deficiency, Um, and it's continued by um, Teresa Tucker, who also is a co-founder of the Magic Foundation and also a mother 
of a child with growth hormone deficiency. She's a consultant with the Growth Hormone Division at Magic Foundation. And so with those joint efforts, really the point of Growth Awareness Week is to generally raise awareness about child's growth. Uh, And the reason that it's in September in particular is because this is the time of the year when kids are getting their annual school physicals and sports physicals and going in to their primary care offices and they're getting their routine care, including measurements of their height and weight. Um, And so monitoring that growth chart, um, how a child is growing, is really uh, an important part of looking at the child's overall health. So me being the brand new dad, as well as brand new dad to a son with a condition uh, dealing with growth hormone. When I first heard, when the doctors first started saying certain things to us, I automatically said, oh, he's going to be short. That's the first thing I thought when I heard the word growth hormone. I said, oh, he's going to be small. Yeah. Uh, so what are some other things that are associated with growth hormone? Aside That's from right. height. So um, growth hormone deficiency. Uh, obviously, it gets its name from growth. So height is one of the things that is affected by growth hormone deficiency. And that's usually how we first um, pick up the condition. Um, So a child that is not growing well um, on their growth chart, uh, not making their appropriate milestones for that, um, should be evaluated for growth hormone deficiency as part of it. But lots of things can affect height. Um, so poor growth uh, is a condition that is not just a cosmetic issue. So it's not like we want the child to be taller or they should be closer to their genetic potential based on mom or dad. But really, poor growth is a sign of overall health. Hmm. So lots of conditions can affect poor growth. Um, and these kind of cluster into kind of two general categories. That's how I view the world. Like non-endocrine, so non-hormonal things, and then hormonal things. Mm. So the non-hormonal things that can affect growth include um, anemia, kidney disease, liver disease, celiac disease, which is a gut problem to wheat or gluten, salt balance issues, and inflammation states, as well as underlying genetic syndromes. So a child that's not growing well should be evaluated for those conditions. In addition, the hormone causes or endocrine causes of poor growth include untreated hypothyroidism, so low thyroid, constitutional growth and pubertal delay, which is where you're a late bloomer, and growth hormone deficiency. All of these can be screened with an array of blood tests, um, an X-ray called a bone age, that looks at the left hand and wrist for the maturity of the growth plates um, and an analysis of the growth chart. In addition, for the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency, some additional tests um, are often done, including growth hormone stimulation testing that looks at um, the child's actual production. Once we've identified that a child has growth hormone deficiency, uh, besides height, there are a lot of other things that growth hormone does. So it truly is an overall hormone deficiency that we really want to replace what's missing. 
Mm-hmm. So again, we're not replacing the growth hormones just to get them taller. That's just one of the symptoms. Um, growth hormone is also needed for a lot of other bodybuilding things. And bodybuilding, not like muscle gym, meathead bodybuilding, but bodybuilding normal health. So this includes um, bone mineral density, muscle strength, uh, cardiovascular profile in terms of lipids, um, and body composition. So it has a whole bunch of other implications. And a lot of these are really when they're done in childhood. So in childhood is when you put down um, most of your bone mineral density mass that you're going to have your entire life. So childhood and adolescence are really important for um, making the diagnosis because we want to make sure to maximize the health of the child overall, not just height. Again, it's not a cosmetic issue, but poor growth can be a symptom of overall health. Yeah, that makes... Yeah. When you... <laughs> while you're describing that, you, you mentioned all the tests that yeah. helped determine... Cause that was our big thing. We They were... There were tests on top of tests yeah. on top of tests. And mind you, he, he's days old. Yeah. And they're running all these different blood tests. Um, he just had an appointment where we heard about, what was that bone? The bone density. Bone density. Yeah, um, and it was the first time we heard it. And we're like, wait, what? <laughs> so, yeah. it, it you know, it's interesting. Um, so, catching it early is the most important mm-hmm. because you're able to step in so that they can lead healthier lives down the road. Anyone on a growth hormone replacement, is that something that they have to have for life? Or is that, um, for some people, it's just periodically, or others, it, it will take, it will be for the rest of their life. Because I remember when we were told that he would need um, the growth hormone medicine, they told us that he would have it for the rest of his life because we were under the assumption that it, that was just for growing. So I'm like, wait, but he stops growing stop after growing a certain, certain age. Time, yeah. And they were like, no, well, that's not. As soon as, it, he, as, yeah. soon as he's six foot eight and he, he's, yeah. he's in the NBA, he could stop. <laughs> yeah. So, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so is this something no, that all of them would point. need for the rest of their lives? Or is it some people it's not, that's not the case while for others it is? That, that's a very good question. So um, it depends on the diagnosis. Um, so if a child has isolated growth hormone deficiency, um, that means that they have a normal pituitary gland and all of the other hormones that are controlled by the pituitary gland, including thyroid and cortisol and puberty hormones, are normal. Um, so those children need the growth hormone therapy during childhood and adolescence to maintain normal growth, bone density, muscle strength, etc. Once they have completed their height, um, then what we do is we'll take them off of the growth hormone um, and give them a washout period of about a month or so. And then there's different styles of how to retest the patients. But um, in our practice, we repeat the growth hormone stimulation testing similar to what had been done at the initial diagnosis years earlier, and see, based on the adult criteria, do they still have a permanent deficiency or Mm. not? The majority of children with isolated growth hormone deficiency, which is the most common form, um, Mm. do not require it ongoing as young adults. Now, if you have a pituitary issue, like your son does with hypopituitarism, 
then the pituitary itself is not functioning well. And it's not going to be able to make even the small amounts of growth hormone that are needed as a young adult. And so in that situation, growth hormone deficiency is a permanent condition, and they would need growth hormone their entire lives. The dosing, of course, changes, though. So you need much higher doses of growth hormone um, while you're actively growing as a child and teen. And as a young adult, you need much lower doses for the ongoing indications of muscle strength and cardiovascular profile and body composition. So based on the underlying diagnosis, it may be a treatment that's done just through the completion of puberty, or it may be one that needs to be a lifetime condition. Okay. This is going to be my new go-to when my family or friends are like, well, explain it. Or yeah. you don't need it all this life. Like, you know what? I'm, I need to go to my last podcast episode. Definitely. Like, go okay, to I need you mark. to listen to this. <laughs> yeah. And they'll be like, oh. It, it, it's always good for family members. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I always was interested because we have, I guess, I see it as a privilege to um, see an endocrinologist quarterly and be able to ask questions and get answers. But for those parents that don't have to see, um, you know, a specialized doctor, how would they know um, that their child is not growing at the pace that they should, that they're too slow? What are some of the signs? Yeah, for that? that's a very good question. Um, so a lot of times uh, what parents will report is that children are out wearing their clothes versus outgrowing them, meaning mm -hmm. that they're staying in the same size and eventually they just fall off because they're all ready. Or the shoes wear down because their feet haven't grown. Um, so that's um, a nice obvious way of seeing, you know, are they changing outfits appropriately and outgrowing them as they should be? Or are they wearing the same clothes um, you know, the season comes back and the summer's there and they're still in the same um, uh, shoes. Uh, another way to tell is you can kind of roughly see how they're doing with their peers. So um, for school-aged children, um, they always line up for, you know, their pictures every year. And um, you can see, like, are they keeping pace with their peers? Or does it seem like they're becoming increasingly um, shorter than their friends? So that the difference between the, um, the uh, classmates is becoming greater. Now, that's a little trickier, of course, because when we do comparisons, we want to make sure we're comparing boys to boys. Yeah. So make sure they're the same gender and make sure they're, they're the same age. Um, and, of course, you know, schools can have uh, in a classroom kids that are over a year difference in age. Um, and, of course, their genetic potential. So really tall parents will have taller kids in the classroom. Really short parents will have shorter kids in the classroom. But those are a good general thing. Um, how are they doing with their clothes? How are they keeping up with their peers? In addition, because most children do need to go to their primary care about once a year um, for the things we talked about, like sports physicals or school physicals or um, the vaccination schedule, um, a nice way to um, reassure yourself or um, see if there might be a concern is to ask the provider, hey, what does the growth chart look like? Um, and the nice thing about the growth chart is it tracks the child's growth um, uh, every year. 
Uh, and in between visits, if they have like an asthma condition or something that um, may have other complicating issues and they need to be seen more often, um, ask them, hey, can you can you measure them too? Do a height too, not just a weight for dosing of medication. Mm. And that way we can have more data. Um, it's always good um, as a physician. I love to see data. So I love graphs. Uh, and a lot of what we can see is we can see how they are tracking on their curve. If a child, um, when they're about four years and up, are growing about two inches a year, that's kind of the bare minimum that they need um, to maintain appropriate growth. If it looks like they're drifting from their growth chart and falling off of their percentiles, so they were, for example, previously tracking at the 25th percentile and now are down to the 10th or the 5th, that's a concerning growth pattern because they're not keeping up with an appropriate rate of growth. So those would be some red flags um, that can uh, tell a parent, hey, maybe my child's not growing well. Okay. It's funny because I, I, it sounds so weird saying, I feel like we got lucky with his diagnosis. But yeah, for being early. Yeah, and because uh, uh, an amazing nurse just noticed. Yes, yeah, so she noticed. She just noticed something right. looked weird uh, about minutes after he was born. And it made me wonder how easy is it for a, um, for it to be missed, I guess, early on. That's a good question. So um, in your condition with hypopituitarism, there are other signs besides growth because those yeah. babies are hopefully identified as, as infants. Um, so that can include like hypoglycemia, so low blood sugars. Um, it could include um, certain type of um, characteristics like a what's called frontal bossing, so kind of the forehead being a little bit prominent, um, or the nose being a little bit, um, the, nasal, the nasal bridge being a little depressed, or other kind of what we call midline defects. So um, uh, small penis could be part of that as well. Um, so there's a few other things that we would look at for hypopituitarism um, that makes the infants a little bit easier to pick up. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the main um, ones that we would look at on the physical of the findings. So you mentioned um, when it comes to age, um, when they're four years old, how they're pretty much at that point going to the doctor once a year. Is that around the age that you, as a parent, would should start keeping an eye out for like the growth chart and making sure that you are if you are having some concerns is four years old the youngest that you should um really start to notice or try to observe a little closer certain things or is or is like maybe three years old or two years old like what's too young to be concerned about growth hmm. or is it just sure are you out wearing your clothes and not outgrowing them yeah, no, no, I think, so there's different rates of growth based on age. Mm -hmm. The two inches a year starts at about four. Oh. Um, and then it's a little bit higher um, at the younger ages. But um, really in the, um, in the first two years of life, uh, usually the measurements are done as a length. So that's when they stretch the child out yeah. and do the two little marks on the paper and do those measurements. Um, those measurements aren't super accurate because there's always a little bit of wiggle room. Did we stretch them appropriately, et cetera? Um, and so in the first two years of life, there can be a fair amount of variation on the growth chart up and down. Um, but by the time they're standing, 
um, and able to do a standing height measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on the practice and how um, uh, cooperative the child can be, that's between age two and three. So by the time they're standing, they should be at a percentile that's appropriate for their family. Um, and that's where we have kind of the concept of what's called a mid-parental height. So a mid-parental height says how tall the child should be um, compared to their family. Um, so we have um, mom and dad. And on average, um, men and women or boys and girls are about five inches difference in height at the same percentile. So, for example, a five foot five woman is the same percentile as a five foot ten male. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when we're looking at our genetic potential, we would take mom's height and dad's height. And then we want to um, make sure we kind of gender neutralize according to the kid. So, let's say we have a little boy mm-hmm. and dad's five foot ten. And then mom is five foot three. So we take mom's height, that five foot three, and then add five inches to her height as okay. if she were male. So that's five foot eight. We'll average that five foot eight with dad's five foot ten. That gives a mid parental of five foot nine. And then plus or minus two inches on either end is one standard deviation in terms of the range. What I do is when we look at that growth chart, on the far right of the growth chart is kind of the 18 plus, kind of the young adult. Plot the adult potential based on the parents. Okay. So the mid-parental target, and then give a two-inch window on either end, and that'll tell you the percentile range that the child should be falling into. If they're in that range, then that looks appropriate, and just make sure that they're tracking and following their curve. If they're lower than that range, um, that may require an evaluation to see why they're not appropriate to their family zone. So, you know, th- that that's interesting because um, I wonder sometimes if if just like a family is just naturally short um, or is it that maybe they didn't like someone there didn't maybe had a growth hormone deficiency. Just they just never it. addressed it. My hairstylist, her net, her niece and nephew, they're like, I guess like generations, they've always been very short. And then I guess like her sister said, you know, something's just not right here. Took them to the doctor and realized her kids, they were just deficient in growing. And so they gave them the uh, hormone replacement, the, the, the treatment, and then they grew and then everything was great. And then I think that's when the rest of the family was like, wait, Everybody, I don't think we're all fam- small. Family trip to the endo. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, there's a couple things. So um, so these predictions that we're talking about, um, they don't work as well when there's big differences in um, the parents. So if mom is 4'11 and dad's 6'1, the prediction is not quite as accurate because we've got a big difference here. And we know that even though there's kind of a 50-50 contribution, it, it does, um, like with other traits, it may um, have kind of a multifactorial um, expression. So it can be a little bit more towards mom's side of the family or dad's side of the family. So those predictions with big differences in parents are less accurate. Um, when looking at families, if 
mom is short and dad is short and everyone in the family is short. The most common scenario is that it's probably just familial short stature. But if one family member is much shorter than the others within that, um, then there may be a difference um, and require an evaluation. So a lot of times, you know, if dad is particularly short um, or the mom is particularly short, I ask, and how does that parent fit with their siblings or the grandparents? Like, do they all kind of trend together mm. or does one seem to be an outlier? If there's an outlier, there may be a chance that there was an undiagnosed condition in the parent to begin with. Mm. Um, there are also other genetic syndromes that can run into families um, that can lead to short stature as well. So there's some inheritance patterns too. Okay. And once once a child is diagnosed um, growth hormone deficient, are there any limitations um, to them? Like, so with us, we have our child is panhypopit. So there are certain limitations, um, you know, simple. Some are simple. Some are yeah. much more complicated. Because my long term goal is to have the next, <laughs> the next David Beckham in the family, or the next um, Messi. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to build a, a, a soccer star. But of course, mom is like, no, he has yeah, to be. I'm like, nope. He has to be in the bubble, <laughs> and he can't go outside. And so. I don't think I'm alone there. And the mom's <laughs> wanting to put the it, kid in the bubble. It's the protective mother instinct. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so, are there any limitations once? a child is diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency? That's a good question. So the nice thing is is that no, there are not. Um, okay. Growth hormone treatment um, is basically uh, replacement therapy. So the child can't make enough growth hormone um, and we're replacing what's missing. So in children that have growth hormone deficiency, they take their daily injections um, and they can live totally normal lives. There's no restrictions on physical activity. Um, there are no special things that we need to do in terms of illness or fever or stress or anything like that. Now, obviously, that's different um, in your case because with your child having panhypopituitarism, some of the other hormones need adjustments. So like cortisol hormone is yeah. um, a stress hormone that needs to be um, thought of like when they have a fever and we have yeah. to do things differently or if they're going to have their tonsils out, we need to talk about it. So mm -hmm. there are different limitations and um, adjustments that need to be made. But fortunately for just the routine growth hormone deficiency, uh, there really aren't any other limitations in um, activities of daily living. Are there any other disorders that primarily cause growth hormone um, deficiency or is that at most it's usually just on its own and not like with us, with the panhypopit, we have that is causing, you know, all the craziness relating to the pituitary gland. Effect. Yeah. So is there, are there from, from your professional um experience, I guess. I, I know there's a better word for it, but um, have you come across where you're like, you know, I've seen this um, associated this, with... Yeah, disorder associ mainly associated with a growth hormone deficiency. Sure. So, um, so there's several categories of growth. So there's growth hormone deficiency and then growth hormone therapy where we still give growth hormone treatment for kind of resistant states. So they're not deficient, but they respond well. Um, 
so we start with kind of the, the most common, which is the isolated growth hormone deficiency. They can't produce enough, but they have a normal pituitary gland and normal hormones. Um, there's the hypopituitarism, this is what, what your son has, yeah. where the gland didn't develop appropriately, and so it's a small gland, um, and so it can't make some of the other hormones. Other things that can affect the pituitary gland also include things like tumors. So um, tumors that can affect the pituitary gland will um, knock out the function of the pituitary gland. Uh, then in terms of other FDA-approved indications for growth hormone therapy, um, some, uh, several include different syndromes. Uh, so Turner syndrome is one where um, girls are missing their second X chromosome or have a, chrom a second X chromosome that's a little bit rearranged or messed up. Um, and they can benefit from growth hormone therapy. In addition, um, there's another genetic syndrome called Noonan syndrome and Prader-Willi syndrome. And a lot of these syndromes, um, the height is improved, but in particular, the we see a lot of the benefits on the lean body mass um, and the muscle strength. So for example, Prader-Willi um, uh, infants are really, really floppy. They have really low tone. Uh, and once we give them the growth hormone therapy, they, their muscle strength improves considerably. Um, and they also have better lean body mass for body composition. Uh, so there's various syndromes where we can give growth hormone as part of the therapy that helps. In addition, um, if babies are born really small, um, they may also qualify for growth hormone therapy. So this is what's called small for gestational age, or SGA. So when a baby is in the womb, the um, OBs will call this IUGR, or intrauterine growth restriction. And that's based on the prenatal measurements, the little ultrasounds that they do, to see how the baby is growing, is the baby growing appropriate for how many weeks along they are in gestation. Mm -hmm. um, once the baby is born, then the pediatricians take over and we do our baseline measurements in the nursery. And um, a baby that's SGA, or small for gestational age, is less than the two standard deviations for either their birth weight or their birth length. And the majority of those babies do just fine. About 80% catch up to their genetic potential that mid-parental height percentile we were talking about, um, by age uh, six months, and about 90% catch up by age two. Um, but that 10% that don't, um, by the time you're on the big boy, big girl curve, standing on your own at about two and greater, um, if they haven't caught up, that's called SGA without catch-up growth, and they may benefit from growth hormone therapy. That's also um, an FDA-approved indication. In addition, children that have um, kidney disease, so chronic renal insufficiency, that's also an independent um, indication for growth hormone deficiency. Wow. I'm sorry, for growth hormone therapy. Um, and then finally, they also have uh, an indication for something called idiopathic shortstasher. Now, this is kind of the, the, the biggest um, category that's harder to define because um, idiopathic short stature 
basically means we couldn't find out why the child is so small. Mm. Um, we've done all the testing. We've done all, the, all of our um, blood work. Um, and we don't have an underlying diagnosis. And that's when the child is less than the 1.2 percentile, which is two and a quarter standard deviations. So that's really low. Um, and um, they, we don't know why, and it's not familial. So it's not like everyone in the family is that category. Um, so that's also an independent um, FDA-approved indication for growth hormone therapy. Okay. Now, you mentioned, just now you said uh, certain things not being familiar. One of the first questions we got from a lot of people, and I'm sure other parents with uh, children with a growth hormone deficiency probably heard this question a lot, was, oh, um, it, is it hereditary? Or uh, did you guys get tested? And, and we did. Yeah. And I know for a fact, I, I know I can speak for myself, there were times when I was in NICU with Kalel holding him, and I was in tears because I was saying to myself, did I cause this? You know, did, did something? Because I was like, I was always skinny. I always <laughs> felt weak sometimes. I always got sick. Maybe I have this and I, I passed it on to him somehow. Uh, so for the people who are asking that, is it hereditary? What's the answer to that? That's a good. So certain forms of growth hormone deficiency are hereditary. Um, they um, are usually a uh, result in more severe short stature. Mm. Um, so these include... Um, uh, defects kind of along the pathway, so along like the growth hormone receptor, um, and this causes kind of severe um, dwarfism is what we um, call that. Um, so uh, severe short stature, where we're talking about adult height, you know, less than four feet or so. Um, those often can be hereditary from a, a defect along the growth hormone pathway that signals through the liver to produce IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor, that, that go, then, then goes to the growth plates for growth. Um, so severe forms can be hereditary. Um, obviously, syndromes can be hereditary. Uh, um, otherwise, the most common scenario is that it's an isolated deficiency in a family. Um, that being said, I do follow several sibling pairs that do have it. Um, and so I think down the road, we're going to be able to um, kind of better characterize these kind of conditions. Um, right now, our measurements can say, are you making enough or not? Um, but we can't tell how active is that growth hormone. So I think 10 years from now, we're going to have better testing that says, okay, their growth hormone in this time is only like 60% effective on the receptor. There may be an affinity issue or how it attracts or how it binds that affects their growth. Um, so uh, while typically growth hormone deficiency is an isolated condition in the family members, off, um, there can be um, siblings um, that have the condition as well. Mm. Now, we're, <clears throat> Vicky and I, we're new to the community, the growth, yeah, growth so hormone deficiency com uh, uh, community. But how, how far have, I guess, have we come with uh, research and treatment? That's a very good question. We've come really a long way. Um, so before 1985, um, uh, growth hormone was given as a form called human cadaveric pituitary extract. So basically, you have kind of a dead guy on the table, you crack open their skull, you suck out their brain, 
you put a needle into their pituitary gland, scoop out a little bit of growth hormone, and then inject it into a child. Wow. So, me, me, wow. so our faces, it's as you were saying, barbaric. That? Oh, that's my right. goodness. And this is 1980. 1980- 80s early 80s, 80s? before 1985 yeah before 1985 oh and so you can imagine that in that process there could be some problems maybe um, and there yeah. were <laughs> um we had uh what's called creutzfeldt jacob disease or mad oh. cow disease oh. um and children died oh, which no. is tragic yeah very tragic and it's pediatric endocrinology we're not pediatric oncologists that are accustomed to children dying. We are happy hormone people. Right. We like to replace <laughs> what's missing and, and have kids grow and live normal lives. Yeah. So it was very, very difficult. Wow. Um, fortunately, that was the time when human recombinant technology came into play. And so since 1985, what happened is we were able to synthesize growth hormone in a lab uh, and were able to match it amino acid for amino acid exact protein identical to what the body should be making and everything from 1985 forward has been human recombinant growth hormone Um, and that's been our mainstay of treatment since 1985 Um, it's been monitored very carefully extensively through post-marketing surveillance studies to make sure everything is safe um, because of that experience of Creutzfeldt-Jacob disease in the early 80s. Um, And um, we've shown that it really is very safe and effective. Now we're going to the new frontier of growth hormone where we're talking about doing some types of modifications potentially to make it a longer-acting, more stable version. And they've been looking at that for a while as well. Um, But a lot of the um, new technologies, we're looking at either um, doing a couple modifications on the growth hormone to make it a once a week injection um, instead of a daily injection uh, or um, kind of shielding it into kind of a pro drug medication um, where it shields and then releases the um, natural growth hormone that's synthesized. Um, uh, And so there's a lot of new, exciting research looking at long-acting growth hormone therapies. So um, definitely in uh, your son's treatment course, I think he'll be able to benefit um, from not having to take a shot every day and maybe be able to get one once a week. Yeah, definitely. What about kids that are growing too fast? Is that yeah. would that also be considered? Um, is that something that parents should also be aware of? They should. You're right. So growth awareness week. Um, obviously, we've been focusing a lot of this on growth deficiency and poor growth. Um, but children that are growing too fast um, should also be evaluated. Um, and it's the flip side. So they're outgrowing their clothes faster than. Um, you would think it should be typical compared to their siblings or they're sprouting, you know, a head above their classmates. A lot of times this has to do with puberty um, yeah. and the timing of puberty. So it's really important um, if it looks like a child is growing too quickly is to have their puberty carefully examined. Um, on average, um, pubertal milestones are kind of as follows. Girls typically have breast buds between 10 and a half um, yeah. Uh, and 11, uh, pubic hair, 11 and a half, uh, 11 to 11 and a half, uh, 
and um, periods by 12 and a half. Any of those signs, pubic hair or breast development, under age eight is a little bit too soon. Um, And it should be evaluated um, by a physician to see, is it going too quickly? Now, um, African-American and Latina girls can have a little bit of pubic hair between six and eight um, and still be um, appropriate and not going too quickly. Um, And so we want to just make sure that um, we're looking carefully at both the breast development and pubic hair development and monitoring the progression to make sure it doesn't go too fast. So even if it may not be too young, um, a 10-year-old that's going through uh, the changes of puberty, the various stages, um, too quickly is also concerning. Um, In boys, uh, really they just have testicle development and pubic hair development. Um, And the testicle development, nobody notices, not even the boys themselves. All the men, no one remembers any of this stuff. Whereas (laughs) girls obviously remember the very first breast bud because it's very obvious. Yeah. So really, um, that's one that has to be more examined by the physician. Um, But pubic hair would be something that would be um, concerning. And again, under age nine um, would be the cutoff for boys or if they're going through the stages of puberty too quickly. Yeah, it's very that's because I feel like sometimes people, um, they only think of the deficiencies and a lot of times. There is the, the very opposite of that, and people just are just like, well, you know, it's just happening really yeah. soon nowadays. And the reactions that are usually, oh, good, look at look, he's growing so big, so, yeah, fast. so fast, yeah. yeah. But doctor, thank you so much. I mean, I've I've taken more notes than I've taken when I was an undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> There's gonna be a quiz at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. No, but this was this was very important to us because, um, like I said, we're 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 new to the community, and we've learned so much over the past two years. But um, just from being on the Magic Foundation's Facebook page, we see that it's such a huge community. Yeah, it's um, it's not just pan hypopituitarism. It's just, you know, it's so much under that, that, that umbrella of growth hormone uh, deficiency. And as soon as we found out about the Magic Foundation, we found out about Growth Awareness Week, we definitely felt better because we felt we had, uh, what's the word? A before? community. We had a community, but yeah. it was support. We had support. Yeah, support. We had somewhere to learn from, somewhere to turn to for information. Uh, a, a big thank you to uh, Teresa for hooking this up. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, like I said, this has been educational for me. I know it's been the same for Vicky and for everyone listening, all of our family, our friends, supporters, our listeners. Uh, I'm hoping it, it, it served the same purpose for you who, who are listening now. Um, um, also, I just want to say, um, O'Day referenced a lot the, uh, the, the groups on Facebook, which yes. are catered like pretty much our communities around... Um, whatever the you know the challenge or disorder your child is facing but if you want to learn more about growth awareness week and just everything else that the magic foundation is doing um you can go to the website which is www.magicfoundation.org and you can just i'm not even kidding just browse the entire (laughs) website and it's just a plethora of information and ways to be a support system to families um and again, I want to thank you so much um, for joining us on this recording because I know, like like I said, we are privileged to have access to an endocrinologist. Um, but still, it's just, you know, it's one meeting. Yeah. And there's just like so many questions 
that yeah. you're not able to ask. And now I'm just happy because we can just continue to just go back to this recording and reference certain things. Or if you want, like um, O'Day mentioned earlier, hey, you want to know more? You should probably start <laughs> just listen to this podcast. And then from there, something might, you know, trigger a interest that yeah. they might want to send to a friend. And that's pretty much what the whole point of spreading awareness is. I'm definitely using all these big words on Kalel's next endo visit. <laughs> 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 I'm going to be like, listen, doctor, the FGA. Uh, I'm not sure if you know this, doctor, but. Uh, <laughs> but it that ain't, sounds it, great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and that's really the, the beauty of, of being interconnected and the patient yeah. advocacy um, and the beauty that um, Magic Foundation does as one example of a patient advocacy advocacy group and families like you guys are doing with your podcast is just getting um, awareness out so that families don't feel alone, um, families uh, feel supported, uh, and are really able to get um, the care and evaluation that they need. Awesome. Yes. Well, with that said, we once again, thank you for being here. Thank you to all the listeners. And this has been <laughs> an amazing growth, uh, growth Hormone Awareness Week episode of the You, Me, We podcast.